It's good to be back in, uh, behind this podium today, sharing the Word of God with you. Please turn your, with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, that's where we'll be looking today for this first sermon in this mini-series before we continue in the Gospel of Mark. Romans 12. And specifically, we'll look at verses 3 through 8 to start off our time together. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Bacon, marshmallows, and $395 in cash. That's what 47-year-old Christopher Knight was pilfering when he was arrested on burglary charges a couple of years ago in Augusta, Maine. He became somewhat of a media sensation once it was discovered that he had spent the last 27 years alone in the woods Residing undetected under camouflage tarps, he paid no taxes, he had no address, he never used a cell phone, and he had not spoken to anyone in all of those years except for one time when he greeted a passing hiker. No one knows why he shed his life as a computer scientist at the age of 19 or 20, but he has nevertheless been applauded for his rugged individualism. As details of Mr. Knight's life emerged, local musicians romanticized him in ballads. They wrote songs in his honor. A Maine deli even named a sandwich after him called The Hermit. And such social reclusion as this may seem extreme, but it's nothing new. But it's making a surprising comeback in the United States, believe it or not. There are now entire camps devoted to providing, quote, an ideal setting for anyone seeking a retreat in silence and solitude in a simple and rustic environment. That sounds appealing to you? The Sky Farm Herit uh, Hermitage, that's what it's called, in Sonoma, California, can provide this to you for $85 a night. <laughs> you pay money to be alone. Now, while most of our culture would recognize this type of behavior as being somewhat extreme, it shouldn't surprise us that this is the direction that our society would continually progress toward. Self, alone, me, myself, I. And it's not just these few extreme examples. Other research through the years has pointed to the fact that American culture in particular is trending toward the individual. A couple years ago, I came across an interesting book entitled, listen to this, Title of the book, Bowling Alone, 
The Collapse and Revival of American Community by Robert Putnam. Now, it's a fascinating title because it's playing off the idea that bowling leagues, which used to be so popular in the 50s, are becoming decreasingly popular, so much so that they're almost non-existent now. So Putnam noticed that little trend and decided to do more research to see if there were other areas in which people used to do things as a group and now are beginning to do those as individuals. And after chapter after chapter, he begins to show that Americans have become increasingly disconnected from one another and social structures like the PTA, the church, and the political party are disintegrating. Now, as much as we would expect that in secular society, I would even have you understand that this is beginning to happen in people who claim to be Christians as well. The church has not been amused from the uprise in individualism. The self-centered trend impacts the church. Putnam, the author I just referred to, actually has an entire chapter dedicated to religious organizations and churches. And his research bears out that since the 1960s, membership and group participation in church activities has been on a perceptible decline since then. It's even confirmed by evangelical pollster George Barna. When he asked several thousand believers about the importance of being in a church or being with a church, half of the people, people claiming to be Christians, half of them said church is important. (laughs) The other half said church is not important. This is 50% of people who claim to be Christians say, well, church isn't really that big of a deal. When he asked those individuals who thought that church wasn't that important why it was not important, here was the answer representing 75% of all answers. I find God elsewhere, or church is not relevant to me personally. Are you noticing the pronouns? Why church? If it's just me, if it's just about me and my personal relationship with the Lord, what do I need other people for? It's a good question. Individualism is on the uprise. And my question would be for you this morning is, do you see this? Or is it just the isolated research that I've been able to piece together? I think I see it. I see it in people's consistent tendency to withdraw from others, to come in, to come out the general decrease in church attendance, not in this church, but in other churches around the country, the increased interest in technology that enables us to have things like preaching and study apart from other people. Do you notice this in yourself? And finally, do you think that this is what God intends? Let's reorient reorient ourselves with the context of the passage that we just read to find out the answer to that question. Does God intend for our relationship with him to become increasingly individualized or not? You guys would know very well because before I ever got here, you were studying the book of Romans together. And you'll recall from your study that in chapters 1 through 11, Paul is expounding upon the wonderful idea that God's righteousness has been provided to any who would place their faith in Christ. It's about the provision of God's righteousness. We lacked righteousness. God has righteousness. He provided it in His Son. And it's just a beautiful explanation of the gospel, an extremely detailed one at that. 
And we have all this doctrine from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, and then you get to chapter 12, and things begin to make this huge angular turn the other direction. It moves from the theoretical, the abstract, just the gospel itself, into the practical implications of those who say that they have received this righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the famous verses, for those of you who grew up in church and you've been to a youth camp, you've heard these two verses preached probably more than any other, or chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, look at them. Paul summarizes the response of the one who would respond to God's righteousness, and he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How many of you have ever heard a sermon preached on Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? I'd ask you to raise your hand. All right, very good. Uh, that's a lot of you. Not all of you, but a lot of you. You get the idea. Or let me summarize it for those of you who haven't heard it. If God's given you His righteousness, if you've received His grace by faith, you don't work for it, there is a natural response to that. There's a way that He would have you respond. And that way is for you to completely and fully give yourself to Him, and notice the oxymoron here, as a living sacrifice. A life sacrificed to God. Now, that's the general overarching thing. A life of sacrifice to God. And then, throughout the rest of Romans, from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 16, he's going to talk about different ways in which you would be able to concretely sacrifice your life to God. What blows my mind about where we are in Romans today is that the first expression, concrete expression, of how we can respond to God in light of the righteousness that He has given us deals with our relationship to others in the local church. For all those sermons I ever heard on Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, typically the application was one of two things. It was either you could ascetically spend more time with God, away from other people, read your Bible more, pray more, that type of thing. Or, it was some type of called a radical missionary service, isolated, out, alone, on the continent of Africa or Asia, just where you didn't want to necessarily be. If you really wanted to be a living sacrifice, you'd either spend more time alone with reading the Bible and prayer, or you would take your whole life and spend your life alone somewhere on a missionary field. But what we see is that it has nothing to do with being alone. The first concrete expression of someone who is living a life sacrificed to God actually pertains to their relationship to others in a church body. Pretty mind-blowing. So Paul ultimately is saying the first way in which you would sacrifice yourself to God in response to His grace is by imbibing or embracing a, a membership mindset, seeing yourself as a member of the body of Christ. This is the first way in which you will respond rightly to His grace. The verses that we've looked at today will show us that God desires for His people basically to have a membership mindset as opposed to what our world is pushing, and that is a me-centered one. A membership mindset versus a me-centered one. 
And particularly, we'll see three marks of a membership mindset. That when practice will enable us to overcome the self-centeredness of our culture, those three marks are this, an attitude of humility. We'll see that in verse 3. An appreciation of unity. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. And then an application of ministry. We'll see that in verses 6 through 8. So let's dive right in. What are these marks of a membership mindset that Paul is calling for us to have? First, a membership mindset consists of an attitude of humility. Look at verse 3 again. Paul introduces this topic by saying, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now notice, Paul calls for believers to view themselves soberly, that's an interesting word, not extravagantly, by having them remember that God gave them everything, even the faith to operate any spiritual giftedness that they may have. I love the humble way that Paul even says this. Notice he opens up by saying, For by the grace given to me. Simply here he is referring to the grace or the gift of his apostleship. He had this special office entrusted to him as a New Testament apostle, one who had seen the risen Christ, one who was authorized to write the written revelation of God, and he doesn't demand this from them in some harsh way. He just acknowledges that this office that he has is a gift from God. And he says, on the basis of this gift that God has entrusted to me, I want you to not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now there's the command, and it's a pretty interesting Having taken taken the pains to single out all of his hearers and command this right response to grace, he then does this word play with the same Greek word four times in a row to really crystallize what he wants from this people. Now, we can't see the word play as much in the English, even though you could get a sense of it, but I will go ahead and clue you in on it. The Greek word phreneo is used four times in one verse. Now, what does phreneo mean? It means to think, to, to esteem, to consider, to regard. Paul, what he really wants from these people isn't intellectual process as much as it is an attitude or a mindset. He's telling them, I want you to have this type of mindset, but not this type of mindset. This is what's going to enable this right response. You could even summarize or translate these verses. I say to everyone among you, not to regard of himself more highly than he ought to regard himself, but to regard himself so as to have a sound regard, as God has allotted each the measure of faith. Do you notice how he's using the same word over and over? You could translate it another way. I say uh, to everyone among you not to estimate himself more highly than he ought to estimate himself, but to estimate himself so as to have a sound estimation. You get the idea. All right, so he's calling for a particular mindset, and he's going to present it in a beautiful way. I love antithetical teaching. He has a positive and a negative, and he presents the negative first. Don't think of this kind of mindset. Do have this kind of mindset. So what is the, the negative? What's the prohibition? What's the negative command? not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, the word here that is translated as this phrase, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, is basically that word think with the preposition, or excuse me, the the particle in front of it, hyper. Hyper. Now, what do you think of when you think of the word hyper? 
I think of a hyperextended elbow. I think of, a, of hyperactive children. <laughs> when, we, when we talk about the word hyper, anytime we add that before something, we're talking about something that has gone beyond its intended limit. So here, the children are acting excessively childish. The elbow has gone past where it is supposed to. And in a similar way here, someone's regard for self has exceeded the reasonable limit. There is an excessive regard for self. Do you understand what I'm communicating? And such an excessive regard for self is the death knell of spiritual usefulness. And it runs counter to a life offered as a sacrifice to God. I think it manifests itself in two ways primarily. The most obvious is bragging. You know that type of person. You can count up their conversations for personal pronouns and they can do a sentence with maybe three, three or five sentences and you'll hear those words, I, me, myself, mine, probably 30 or 40 times. It's an unnatural ability, but some people just know how to talk about themselves and they love to do it. And that's just such an obvious like no-no in the Christian life. Of course we shouldn't be about ourselves. And thankfully, I would say as the pastor of this church and the interaction I've had with you, I don't sense that from anyone here. But there's a second way in which this particular command could be breached. And it's not an excessive regard for self in uh, bragging, but it could be an excessive regard for self in how you beat yourself up. Someone who's always talking about what they don't have and what they can't do, and nobody likes me, and everybody hates me, and I, I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I'm insufficient for this, but do you notice what both of these things have in common? It's still a bunch of first-person personal pronouns. Instead of thinking about Jesus, you're still concerned with self. And Paul says any excessive regard for self is a problem. It's something that should be avoided. This is not going to result in a life that is lived as a sacrifice to God. Paul says, no, this isn't it. But positively, how should we think? He says, think with sober judgment. Sober judgment. Sober is a wonderful word. It conveys the idea nicely. What's the opposite of sober? Drunk. <laughs> Don't be afraid to say it. <laughs> sober, drunk. When you know of someone who is drunk or inebriated, they are operating in excess. There's someone who is uh, under the influence. <laughs> they are out of control of their fa faculties, and yet Paul is calling for the opposite of that. A steady clear-headed understanding of the believer and his or her world that recognizes the truth of the gospel. It's a mind informed or controlled by truth. Anytime you see Paul talking about sober-mindedness, he's not just talking about not taking in too much alcohol. He is referring particularly to a disciplined mind, one that is informed by, constrained by, controlled by the truth of God itself. Now, he hasn't said yet what this truth is, but that is what he's calling for. Not a mind that is consumed with what self can do or what self can't do. He wants a mindset that is consumed with or controlled by something else. And what is that something else? It is this last phrase in the text, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Paul wants them to recognize 
that the foundation of all spiritual usefulness comes from God. God has given all of us a measure of faith. He has enabled us to believe and trust in Him. Now when we see that, a little technical point here, we could think one of two ways. Has God given us all a faith for salvation, or is this some other type of faith? Well, when we're looking at this verse, Paul seems to have in mind the ability, the faith, the confidence to actually serve the church. There has to be a certain measure of faith in our lives for us to be able to do anything about God. Think about it from these, this perspective. The person that I mentioned earlier who always thinks, I can't do this, I can't do that, will they ever do anything for the Lord? If you're constantly telling yourself, no, I can't do these things, you'll never actually get out there and do anything. And Paul says, look, uh, there's a certain measure of faith involved in ministry. You have to trust that God will bless your teaching. God will bless your service. God will enable your ministry. And Paul is ultimately getting back to the fact that, look, all faith, the most foundational ability for any service, is a gift from God himself, and he even gives that to you. Everything that you need to minister faithfully in a local church to other people comes from God. Think of that. Don't think about your limitations. Think about His provision. Paul recognizes that every believer hearing this letter has been sovereignly and graciously equipped to make a contribution to the Lord's work. And I think practically this mindset would evidence itself in two ways. One would be for those who would be tempted to think too much of themselves, we would need to realize in light of this text that we're not the total package. And again, I don't know many people who think that way, but unless you were tempted to think you were, don't. <laughs> don't think that way. You say, I would never say those words, but you would act that way. You know people who involve themselves in too much. They try to do too much. They don't ever give anything away. They don't ever entrust any other ministry to anybody else because they don't think it'll be done well. Stop thinking so highly of yourself. Recognize that God has gifted other people in the body too. And then on the opposite end, for those who never engage in any type of ministry, for those who never try to do spiritual good to others, He would have you understand, look, He's given you what you foundationally need to be able to make a difference in other people's lives. Don't underestimate yourself. Or don't underestimate your Savior. God has given you the faith that you've needed to serve. So the attitude of humility is requisite for a membership mindset. But there's more. More practically, not only would we have this foundational attitude of humility, but there would also be an appreciation for unity. An appreciation for unity. I would almost even call it an affection or an appetite for unity. It's something stronger than that. Everybody appreciates unity, but this should be a pursuit of the believer. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So interestingly, Paul longs for this humility to lead to a strong unity amid God-given diversity. Let me say that again. Paul longs for this humility to lead to a strong unity amid God-given diversity. He likens the church to a human body. He depicts how believers with the right mindset will relate to one another with a local, or through the local church. And I love the analogy, a body. Everybody understands the analogy of a body. <laughs> there are many different parts of this thing, and they all work together to form one body. 
scientists even in our day have uncovered that most or the human body consists of 3.27 trillion cells. Cells. I mean, a cell is a living organism. It, it has movement, excretion, respiration, reproduction, irritability, response to external stimuli, nutrition, growth. I mean, all of these things, there's 3.27 trillion of those, and somehow they all work together to form one body. It's a great analogy. Paul loves the analogy. He actually uses it five or six times in his writings. The other famous passage in which this is used is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you haven't read that of late, I would encourage you to even read it this week to see how Paul talks about us being a church body. And here's the basic point of the analogy. It's that we're all different, and we need others, and others need us. I used to explain it to people in these terms. I would say, when we talk about membership, we're not talking about Costco or a country club or something of that nature, we're talking about body parts. And when you are saying that you're a member of the church, you're saying that you're a member in the same way that my hand is a member of my body. As such, it makes a contribution to my body. It serves the entire me. But at the same time, the entire me, with all of its systems, serves the hand. Isn't that a beautiful relationship? That's what Paul calls for that's the analogy to be understood. And then he applies this analogy by breaking it down into his component parts. And he would have you only notice three little things about it. One of the first things that we would notice about ourselves in this analogy of the body is that we are diverse. There's a diversity. We're different. We're all different. That's why he says there are many members. And then he also says that we're individually members of one another. We haven't all been flattened out into the same thing. We are different. The church is diverse, and it's not just the classical things that people would differentiate, not just socioeconomic categories, but actually capacity, serving capacity. Some people are planners, some people are doers, some people are confronters, some people are comforters. I would say that we recognize our diversity because we all have different opportunities. We all have different inclinations. We all have different desires. We all have different abilities. God has made us unique. But there's not just diversity. We're not just all a bunch of different organisms, if you will. But there's also commonality. All of this difference comes back to one thing in common, and we see that thing recorded for us in chapter 12, verse 5. So we, though many, are one body, and what does your text say? What does your text say? In Christ. In Christ. That is the one thing that we all have in common. We're part of Christ. Amid all of our diverse levels of ability and giftedness, we must never forget that we are members of Christ. We are in Him. Theologians call this the doctrine of the union of Christ or union with Christ. This idea of us as Christians being in Christ together occurs 216 times in Paul's writings and 26 times in John's writings. It is a major deal for the Christian life. Augustus Strong, one of the great theologians of the 19th century, explained it this way. Union with Christ is a God-constituted union of the soul with Christ. A union of life in which the human spirit while then most truly possessing its own individuality and personal distinctness, 
is interpenetrated and energized by the Spirit of Christ. You ever thought about that? That, that? that picture, the fact that Christ isn't just with you, and He's not just in you, but you are in Him. And whatever is true of Jesus Christ is also true of you. And therefore, whatever is true of Jesus Christ is also true of everyone else who is in Jesus Christ. This is why when you're sitting on an airplane, you can sit beside someone else and you find out that they're a Christian and then all of a sudden the conversation can take off because you share something in common. It's life-giving. It's invigorating. And similarly, Paul is saying that we must recognize that we're not just individuals, but we have something in common. Which leads to the point of the entire metaphor, not just individuality and commonality, but finally, mutuality. There's a sense in which we have an obligation to one another because of this connection. God connected you to Christ through faith, and positionally you express that relationship as a member of His body. Now let me give this to you in just like plain logic. Since you belong to Christ's body, right? Following me? And other believers belong to Christ's body. Follow me? Here's the conclusion. We belong to one another. We belong to one another. It's impossible to have a relationship with Jesus Christ without also having a relationship with His people. And excuse me for seeming so passionate about this, but this is why the whole trend toward individualism disturbs me so much. Because it's directly challenging the clear teaching of the Word of God. The, the popular term that my pastor back in California, John MacArthur, that he would stay away from. He never used this. He would talk about it publicly. He would discourage people from using this term. And the first time he ever told me this, it blew me away because I had just grown up on it. He said, Justin, you will never hear me use the phrase a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, like, that was like the bread and butter of the evangelistic presentation that I grew up with, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he went on to explain the weakness of that term. The weakness is, is that it assumes that it is a personal-only relationship with Jesus Christ. Kind of like the old uh, George Jones song, Me and Jesus Have Our Own Thing Going. You know, like you can go out to some stump in the woods and it's just you and Jesus having your private time together and you don't need anybody else. That is not a Christian idea whatsoever. What Paul is clearly telling us here is that if we have a relationship with Jesus, if we're in Christ, other people are in Christ, we have a relationship with one another, like it or not. And the admonition is that you would like it. <laughs> it's really a good thing. So, 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21 remind us. Listen to these words, this warning. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother as well. That's John speaking. The apostle John telling us that it is impossible for you to say that you love God if you don't have a love for his people. They are connected to one another. And so ultimately, when we talk about membership at Faith Bible Church, we are not talking about Costco or AAA. We are talking about something way different. 
This isn't a business term that we injected into church life and thought, ooh, this would be a cool nifty idea to have. No, this is a biblical idea that we're seeking to work out, and we still use the term membership because Jesus used the word membership. And so what are we calling people to do when we ask them to become members of the church? Well, we're just asking to be members of Christ. We see union with Christ pictured in baptism, right? He's the head, we're the body. And then there's also a church aspect to this. We're asking them to say, all right, I belong to this church. I will be a body part here. I will contribute like a hand to the body. Interestingly, the New Testament keeps this church and salvation side closely connected. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says that they repented, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. Repented, baptized, and added to the church. This identification with Christ also included an identification with his people. So, for example, Kathy's going to be baptized today. She's already been saved. She's already been placed in Christ. But she's going to make that public today through the act of baptism. Now, when she publicizes that act through baptism and her testimony, she is declaring not only her union with Christ, but because, as we read in Ephesians 4, we too have also been baptized in Christ, she is professing her union with us as well as the local church. They are closely connected. When we identify with Christ, we also identify with his people. Since heads and bodies are connected, a commitment to one is a commitment to the other. And I would use another metaphor. Since husbands and wives are united, a commitment to one is, committed to, is a commitment to the other. For all those who would say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. How does that float? How would you ever have a conversation with me, for example, and say, hey, I really like you, but I don't like your wife? The church is the bride of Christ. This is what he bought with his precious blood. And to have a relationship with one is to have a relationship with another. And Paul says, hey, you want to live a life that's sacrificed to God? You want to live a life that's consecrated to him? This is what that means. You see it evidenced in the church. So... Clearly, we need other believers to function properly, and that's what he wants us to understand. Charles Spurgeon, by the way, I think said it better than anyone. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to the church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it? Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? What is a brick made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good-for-nothing brick. So, you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You are living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live, and you are much to blame for injury if you do. The inimitable spurge. What a great analogy. Bricks are made for buildings. People are made for the body of Christ. We, by God's design, are intended to be in relationship with one another. So the point of all this isn't necessarily membership applications and membership classes. The point is a mindset. A mindset. Paul wants us to change the way we think and such a mindset will include an attitude of humility and an appreciation of unity. 
And I would say this, if you would respond rightly to God's grace by becoming a living sacrifice unto Him, it will lead you to think less of yourself, more of your Savior, and more of His people. I would only give you one more analogy before we move on to the next point that I think would help you analyze whether or not you really embrace this mindset in your own life. And the illustration would simply be that of a shoe and a foot. If you were to take a shoe, for example, it is something that is associated with a body. It's attached to my foot, for example, for many hours a day. But of course, it's not a member of my body. I can take it off and I won't be hurt. But if you try to take off my foot, I'm going to object. Because my foot is organically connected to the other members of my body. It shares the same lifeblood. It shares the same nervous system. question for you today is this. Are you more like a shoe or a body part? I think what Paul has in mind here is that we would see ourselves as sharing the same lifeblood with God's people, not just being loosely connected with them for several hours a day or week. You may be here today, and you're not vitally connected to a church body. It doesn't even have to be this church body, but I'm talking about a church, a collection of God's people. You don't know anyone, no one knows you, you don't serve anyone, no one serves you. Listen, if that's you today, let us help you. I was so grateful that we decided to read Ephesians chapter 4 today, because that will go on to explain that you know what pastors do in a church? It is one of their unique jobs to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. If you don't know what it means to be a part of the church or a part of the body or that seems like an intimidating thing for you, that's what we do. We want to help you become a part of the body. By the way, membership classes aren't required for New Testament membership, but the reason why we offer those is because we want to help people become a part of the body. You know why we ask people to meet with a pastor when they join the church? Not because the Bible demands that, but just because it's helpful to have a pastor see what your unique gifting is and try to point you into areas of service in a local church. We want to see you thrive in your position as a body member. And if you have questions about that, feel free to ask us. So a membership mindset, it consists of humility and unity. And finally, it consists of ministry. That's where it all goes. A membership mindset consists of an application of ministry. Look at verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. It moves past just thinking of yourself in a certain way and actually beginning to act. The gifts here just simply represent the application of our God-given differences to the good of the body. You hear that? A gift is simply the application of our God-given differences to the good of the body. You know what? Different people in here see different things that they think would contribute to the good of this local church body as we accomplish Christ's mission together. And you know what? If you see something unique that you think you can do, it may very well be God calling you to do it. That's why so many times I'll go ahead and tell you, if you come to me and say, hey, I think we need to do this or that at the church, you know what my answer is? I think you should do that. That'd be a great idea. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I, I, I want to equip you in doing it. My obligation is to teach and preach the Word of God, to serve and pray, and 
I want to come alongside people whatever way I can, but you can serve too. And you see something and you want to do it? You see something that you think would serve this body well? You see something that you think would be of major importance in our outreach, our community? Do it. And let us help you. Let us serve you. That's why I love, or he just gets to the point, he says, just use them. You've got differences. You see different things. Do something about it. Put it into action. And he even notices the differences. Now, we need to be careful here because when you get to the list at the end of verse 6, moving into verses 7 and 8, people love to pigeonhole themselves into some type of certain category and only do certain things. I want you to know that this list of spiritual giftedness is not exhaustive. All right, there's a list in 1 Corinthians 12. There's another list in Ephesians 4. And these things don't always overlap. Paul's just giving us some differences to show that different people in the body serve in different ways. Let me walk through these quickly. Prophecy was the first century gift of speaking authoritative revelation. That gift died out with the apostles, so you don't have to worry about whether or not you have that gift. I assure you, you don't. But secondly... Uh, service is meeting practical needs. It literally means attending the tables. It's the same word that was used in Acts chapter 6 to talk about people coming alongside the apostles to free them up to do the ministry of the word and prayer. You know what? <laughs> that is a huge opportunity in a church like this. I, I just think practically this isn't some advertising kind of thing, but it just came to my mind. Um, for the last few weeks in our email to our church members, we've been asking for somebody to put together a work day for the church. You know, all those workday type of things are things that fit into this area of service. Things where, you know what, I can do something with my hands, I can get something done so the ministry could run better. He says, look, if you've got the gift of service, use it. If, if you're an exhorter, now, exhort is an interesting word. It basically means to encourage people to act on the truth. It's basically the kind of person who can have hard or meaningful conversations with other people. Uh, in 17th century Baptist history, there used to be a position in the church called the exhorter. The preacher would get up and he would actually preach his message and then he would sit down and the exhorter would come up and apply the message saying, uh, Brother so-and-so, I think that you could be acting on this message in this way and Sister so-and-so, you could probably do a better job with this and your family. I mean, it was an intense position. Now, I'm not advocating that anybody become the official church exhorter here, but I will say something. <laughs> Our small groups basically are an opportunity for us to exercise the gift of exhortation. You don't have to revisit the passage, I don't think, unless I did a really poor job explaining it. What you should do is look to see, all right, how can I do something with this? And you should be trying to exhort one another in the application of the Word of God. He says, if you've got the gift of exhortation, do it, use it. And then he says, a contributing, giving. Some of you are like, yes, I know that's not my gift. My budget's out of control. Well, look, all of us as believers have an obligation to give to the Lord joyfully. That's everybody. But interestingly, some people have a capacity and a desire to give above and beyond, and it serves the Lord's work really well. And he says, if you have that, give. If you have the gift of leadership, lead, administrate, oversee things. And then, this is one of my favorites, I don't have this, I wish I did, mercy, mercy. This is the compassionate and sensitive heart. This is like the oil that makes the machine run well. Everybody else can be really efficient and really good at their job, but you need somebody with a kind word and a compassionate heart 
to keep things going smoothly. Otherwise, everybody's going to be at one another's throats. And this is a valuable part of the body. Some of you here in this church are some of the most compassionate and kind and sweet people I've ever met. It is supernatural. Just a couple weeks ago, well, my family for a couple weeks now has been dealing with a bunch of sickness. Everybody's finally back today. But uh, one of you in particular, I don't want to say who it is because it'll be embarrassing, but came to me and said, how are you doing? Now, look, we all ask that question, right? But like this person actually meant it. And they, they want to know, how are you doing? And I said, well, people are sick. And then she just continued to say, well, that is horrible. I hate that, that you know, that's in your home. And she wouldn't let it go. She said, I imagine that your wife is just going under a, a lot right now with five kids at home and just the frustrations of dealing with that and staying up at night. And she just kept going and going and going in empathy toward the situation. I walked away from that interchange energized. I was like, wow, somebody understands what we're going through. It's just the exercise of giftedness in the body. This is a beautiful thing. We don't need spiritual gifts tests to determine what category of thing we need to be doing. We just need to meet needs. And guess what? God's made you so uniquely you're going to see certain unique needs and opportunity in the church and things that you think that you could bring some good to the situation on. And the simple command is get to the point, past just a mindset of unity and humility, but actually get to the point where you put it into action, where you do something about it, like it makes it to your to-do list, whether it's a one-time thing or a recurring thing. But we're thinking action verbs here, things where we actually begin to work out this giftedness in us. So in the end, how do we know if we have a membership mindset or a me-centered one? Well, I, I trust that the text has made this clear, but to serve you in one additional way, I would simply offer you a, a, a two-question test. Two-question test for everyone that regularly attends here or intends to regularly attend here. Now, I'm going to ask you the two questions. I want you to think about the answer just for a few seconds, and then we're going to analyze it. Here they are. How's church going? I know it seems like a simple question, but think about it. How's church going for you? How's, how's Faith Bible Church going for you? Second question, why? Why would you answer that way? For those of you who said good, why would you say good? For those of you who say bad, why would you say bad? Now let's analyze this thing. Someone with a membership mindset, I don't necessarily know how they would answer the first question, but the why would be the most revealing. The membership mindset would focus more on the opportunity to give. The me-centered one would focus on the lack of opportunities to get. The membership mindset would be more about contribution. The me-centered mindset would be more about consumption. How do you typically analyze a Sunday service when you get into the car? Everybody does it. And it's not just like roasted preacher. It's roasted faith Bible church. Oh, how was church today? How was church today? And then people would say, well, you know, it was really uncomfortable in there. You know, the, I mean, it was too warm for my liking. I wish they would have turned the air conditioning on. I didn't like the fact that I had to park four rows back instead of just three rows back. And then the kid sitting beside me, like, sniffing his nose the whole time, got on my nerves. And then nobody talked to me after the service, and that was just really annoying. And, well, the pastor said a joke that I didn't really like all that much, or he's not as funny as I would appreciate him to be. I mean, like, the list could go on and on and on, right? Or 
Somebody could come in under those same circumstances and think, you know what, it was a little warm for my taste, but I know that sister so-and-so is really thin-blooded. I'm glad that she was warm in this service today. And you know what, that wasn't my favorite song, but I know that it probably edified somebody in the congregation who needed it at that time. And you know what, that sermon wasn't as directly applicable to me, but I do know of other people who were probably served well by it, and I should be praying for them about that opportunity. And I know that that kid was sick, and man, you know what, it probably would be good for us to offer to encourage that, that wife or that husband in some way who's been dealing with this sick child. You see the difference between the two? Consumers versus contributors. Uh, me people versus other people. And I, this isn't just some basic moralistic lesson on selflessness. This is Paul's first application of Romans chapter 12. You're a part of the body. Make a contribution and serve one another for the glory of Christ. I think there were four concrete applications, just one-sentence things I could give you that may be helpful. First, you need to realize this. Becoming a part of the body through faith alone and Jesus alone is what God would want from you more than anything else. Forget Faith Bible Church for a moment. I am more concerned that you are connected to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Don't mistake anything I'm saying this morning, even though I'm primarily preaching to Christians. Don't think that involvement somehow equals salvation. Salvation only comes by grace, through faith, alone, in Jesus alone, and what He has done. And that is first and foremost what Paul would have of anybody wanting to respond to this message. But let's say you've done that. Maybe it would be to publicize your commitment to Christ and His body through membership or baptism. So you know what? I do want to be a part of this church, but I just don't know how. I wish somebody would help me. Or I do need to publicly identify with Christ like Kathy's doing today through baptism. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. Talk to us about it. Or maybe you just need to put into practice what you already know by beginning to meet needs here. I'm not asking you to sign up for a special program we're not going to put you on a spreadsheet and send you an email. Well, all we want you to do is just get to know the, per the people around you and start meeting their needs. Maybe for those of you who are in a small group or you run into another believer at this church on a regular basis, it would simply be asking this question, how can I pray for you this week? How can I pray for you this week? I'm telling you, that's a great start because it will expose spiritual need, and a lot of times you can go beyond just praying for the person to actually doing something for them. That's a membership mindset. And I pray that the Lord would mark us all by such an attitude of humility, appreciation for unity, and application of ministry. Let's pray to the head of the church together for help in this endeavor. Lord, you have made us a part of the body. It's a joy. It's a privilege. And yet it's an obligation, an opportunity, and I pray that we would respond to it well. Protect the health of this church body. I pray that every member, every part would fully function for the honor and glory of God this year. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the giftedness of these individuals who gather here. And I pray that you'd richly bless their ministry to one another this week and in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, I pray and ask these things. Amen.